Hi, Serena. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> I'm driving back now, so I hope I can stay connected. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too, but uh, thanks for joining anyway. Hi, everyone. Hi, Brian. Hi, David. Uh, I can't really hear you, but um, you're in the matrix, but it happened to me yesterday. I was in the matrix all day long. <laughs> Hi, David. How are you? Hey, pretty good. Um, I don't tell everyone this, but I, from having a head injury 23 years ago, I severed my first cranial nerve, meaning I don't sense anything to smell. Well, until eight years ago, and I had twins, and my ex made me change every poop diaper. And I could take a big rip off uh, a bad diaper and with scientific accuracy determine binary, yes, there is, or no, there isn't. But that's all I'll contribute before we get scientifically started. That's why I wanted to listen in on this one. That's so interesting. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Hi, Artin. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Can you, can you hear me well? So to unmic, it's uh, on the bottom right hand, the little microphone. Yep. There we go. How are you? Uh, we cannot hear you well. Are you? Oh, we cannot hear you at all. Um, are you on headphones or maybe on a university Wi-Fi? Because if it's the Wi-Fi from an institution, sometimes they block um, apps, social media apps like these. Like you can log in, but you cannot speak. Um, so sometimes it helps to get off. Or if it's just an app problem, sometimes it helps to just drop up. Yeah, I heard something now. Can you try again? <laughs> Um, sometimes it helps to just um, drop out and come back in or unplug the headphones um, to use the app without headphones. Yeah, we can hear like some static noise, but not your voice. I, th I think it might be a headphone issue. Okay, we'll see if, there you are again. Let's try again. Um, yeah, you're muted. Oh, yeah, now you're unmuted. Let's see if it works now. Yeah. Still the same problem. Uh, are you using a computer or are you using your phone? Uh, you can write in the chat. Um, phone. Okay. Are you using headphones? Okay. Maybe try not to use headphones and just the phone without any headphones. Let's see if that works. Yeah, and I think maybe turn the yes, now it works. I can hear you. <laughs> okay, you can hear Perfect. me. Perfect. 
Yeah. Uh, but is the sound good? I think like or. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you very well. That's perfect. Okay. Thank you. Strange that it doesn't work with the headphones, but okay. Uh, it depends on the settings and the phone and what type of headphones. Um, okay. If they are noise canceling ones. I know there are specific no, settings, so it works better. But I, mm. I, Victoria is not here. She's the pro, the social media pro in our group. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, but if it works for you without headphones, that's that's good for, uh, for us. I hope it's okay for you too. Yeah, let's hope it works. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it should be fine. So we'll start in five minutes. Uh, welcome yeah. everyone, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. So thanks. So yeah, no problem. So were you able to put up the slide the PDF? Yeah. So if you see above our heads, basically there is a Clubhouse Science Society PDF link. Do you see it? Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Okay, so great. Awesome. Yeah, so people can click on it and scroll through it while you're talking. Um, so, and I'll share in the chat also the paper in case people, you know, want to later um, yeah. have the paper available at the same time. Let me do that really quick. Somehow, my internet is my phone lately cannot handle clubhouse and other apps too much i don't know if clubhouse is eating up so much memory lately but okay here we are how's your summary so far Everything good? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I'm on countryside on the Swedish uh, archipelago, so it's very bad internet connection here, but it's it's very nice. But it's just, yeah, oh, nice. it's been good. Oh, that's nice. I was a long time ago as a teenager in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, oh. <laughs> making like a round trip. But it's such a long time ago, I guess. It's, I don't know. Did things change much? I feel like whenever I go back to... Uh, when well, I go back to Portugal, things change a lot. But when I go back to Germany... Yeah, I nothing. guess it was... Was it like in their early 20s, 2000s? Or? Uh, earlier than that. I'm much older than you think. Like the 90s. Well, <laughs> yes, then, uh, then, then it has changed a lot, I would say. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so a lot more construction and things like that, or? Well, that and, well, just, I guess, the partially culture, if you've been to Stockholm, it's changed a lot. Like, it's a way more vibrant city now, like, really, really changed. Okay. It's more like European city, yeah. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah you should visit. It's a uh, it's a cool city. Yeah, I should come back and visit again. Yeah, I haven't been for a while in Europe now because of COVID. Um, right. And 
And before that, I was applying for my green card. So my family went, but I didn't because the lawyer said it was under Trump administration. Right. Oh. Then you can't go back. Uh, here, right? He said, the lawyer said, it's better for the applicant, since it was me, to not travel outside the U.S. while the application is going. So it has been a few years. <laughs> I haven't traveled outside of the U.S., but now... Now I, re I hope, you know, it stays like this for a while that we can travel. <laughs> yeah. uh, welcome everyone. We'll start in around one minute. Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming. Hello? Yes, I'm still there. Sorry, I was just oh, sharing. Oh, no, yeah. Just I was just, it's like annoying that uh, if you share things on Twitter and so on, that the room is starting, you cannot really unmute yourself. <laughs> no. It's, uh, yeah, okay. I just share. Good. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I think we can slowly start and um, that gives people. Um... Hi, Victoria. How are you today? Thanks for I'm coming. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, and a special welcome, um, of course, to Artin. Uh, and uh, let me, he is giving his um, talk here today about his recent uh, research. And let me introduce him a little bit um, before we start. Um, so he did his PhD at Stockholm University in Sweden and his po first postdoc at Donders Institute for Brain Cognition and Behavior in the Netherlands and his uh, second postdoc at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and where he's now also currently assistant professor, a principal researcher in the Perceptual Neuroscience Lab at the Department of Clinical Neuroscience at the Karolinska Institute. And um, yeah, his research um, um, is um, related to, um, you know, um, also breathing shapes and function, like about that is and may modulate how we process basic uh, perceptual stimuli and reg re regulate cognitive processes. And um, yeah, that's uh, the the what his group pursues is uh, perception and, and cognition in humans. Um, and he uses um, different um, tools like electrophysiology, uh, psychophysical um, and behavioral tests, 
and um, also measures um, um, uh, structural function uh, with MRIs. And um, yeah, he does really exciting, interesting research. And uh, welcome, Artin. And before you start your presentation, usually Victoria asks like a couple of general questions, if that's okay with you. And then the sure. stage is yours for your presentation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me too. <laughs> Welcome Dr. Ashamian. We're so happy to have you here and hear your talk. And so my question is to give a chance for us to get to know you a little bit more as a person and hear about what your connection is to science. So if you can think back through your life, if you can think of a time when you did notice that science was something that you felt a particular connection to, and this could be any time in your life, um, babyhood, teenagerhood, recently, well, I mean, probably not. Honestly, but, um, yeah, something, sometime that, well, that Victoria, yeah, you're, you. Thank you're breaking you. up. Um, I think we we got the question right. Yeah, 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 I got it. Uh, I guess I mean I'll always be interested in science, uh, and I actually want to be a scientist at a very early age, but not. A cognitive scientist at all actually i was super interested in physics i'm still interested in physics but that's what i wanted to do and that is what i pursued for a very very long time i was quite sure i would study that and, that, and i applied for it uh, and i was lucky enough to get accepted to this spe special program in physics at stockholm university it was a program that you work together with researchers so in their labs you were undergraduate but you did physics at the same time so really physics so i applied and i got in and i was like okay this is super interesting uh, but three weeks before the course would start or the program would start i got a letter saying that well it's too expensive we have to cancel it and I got very upset. Uh, so, but the university said you can apply to and get in unless you get into whatever program you want. Of course, you can get into the normal physics program. But I was kind of angry, so I said, "Well, screw physics. I will do something totally different." So I applied to biology, and I did biology for one and a half years. I was terrible at it. I'm very bad in memorizing stuff, uh, and I was basically dropping out. And then I had a course in neurobiology and that kind of changed everything. I was like, wow, this is super cool. Uh, so I studied that for a while. And then after that, I said, well, before I do a master in this, I'll just take a course in psychology just to, you know, study humans as well. I was mostly studying uh, like fruit flies. And I was thinking like, I will do one semester psychology and I will go back to the biology department. But then kind of, you know, by chance, I kind of stayed there. Humans were a bit more interesting than the flies. So I stayed there and I did my PhD and that's, that's how I got into science. Thank you. Thank that's, you. it's that's... really, oops, I hear an echo. Ah, sorry, I hope you don't hear the echo. Um, I think it's really, I'm, I'm curious about your psychology class that involved fruit flies. <laughs> 
Oh, well, it wasn't psychology. That that was pure biology class. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It, yes. There were no. But there were only humans in the psychology class. Okay, because you know, I mean, we of course their feelings matter too. But I was just a little curious. So thank you. If if now um, you can take us from that point and and yeah, that's lovely to hear that you were bounced around and and um, hooray for life sciences really. But um, I'm I'm wondering where if you could walk us along the path that brought you here to your current research from that point. And thank you. Again. Well, yeah. Well, again, it was coincidence, chance, I don't know, I wasn't interested at all in olfaction. I guess I was interested in, well, I was interested in memory, for sure, so I want to do something with that. And it just happened to be that, uh, like, research in olfaction, it's very, like, the sense of smell is very strong at Stockholm University, where I uh, were studying. So I, just by chance, got in contact with uh, Maria Larsson, which is, was my professor there. And she was also my supervisor for my PG. So I started in her lab. She worked with olfaction. Honestly, in the beginning, I would think like olfaction, like the sense of smell, who cares? Uh, but then I kind of realized probably this is a super, super cool area because we don't know anything about it. Like compared to vision, we know next to nothing. Uh, so I stayed and I studied the olfactory memory. I specifically studied what we called Proustian memories. You know, when you smell something and then you remember something from your childhood. So that's what I did for my PhD. And then, yeah, I just stayed in olfaction. I started studying perception. And uh, studying olfaction, you also kind of studied respiration because respiration and olfaction are very interlinked in humans because respiration, or like olfaction basically is part of the respiratory system if you smell through your nose. So that kind of led me into what happens to the brain and to behavior when you are breathing. So yeah, that's the path. Okay, so that's about the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Thank you. And personally, I, I have um, maybe an overactive olfactory sense and which can be really challenging depending you know, on, on the environment. And I, yeah, this, this topic of, of the cultural aspect of, of it is, is, I can't wait to hear what you're going to share with us. So um, yeah, endless conversations. So thank you so much. And at this point, you're welcome to begin your discussion. And then following that, we can have a Q&A if you'd like, or we can use the Q&A to drive your talk, whichever you prefer. And we, the moderators up here, um, will take care of bringing people up and moderating questions. So you can enjoy your talk and your link is pinned above so people can um, follow along if they'd like. Okay. So the mic is yours. Awesome, then I will start. So uh, today's talk uh, is called The Perception of Odor Pleasantness is Shared Across Cultures. And if you look at the slides, this is slide number one. So that's the title of the talk. This is also the title of the paper that recently came out. And it's an open uh, paper, so you can access it at Current Biology if you would like. So <clears throat> if you would go to the slide number two. So the heading of that is called On the Dimensionality of Outer Space. So why would I talk about the dimensions? Well, to understand the aim of this talk, I think 
I will need to give you a brief overview of the olfactory system. So there's a lot we don't know about olfactory perception. And the major reason for this is that we still do not fully understand its dimensions. So let me give a comparative illustration from our other senses. So for example, the perceptual space for human color vision has three dimensions. So every color sensation can be matched by mixing together three primary lights, red, green, and blue, right? So we also know that color vision is based on three kinds of cone photoreceptors in the retina that differ in their sensitivity to wavelength, to the wavelength spectrum of light, okay? For our sense of hearing, well, sound is basically a series of pressure waves made by objects that are vibrating. So for example, pitch has to do with the distance between the waves. So these examples from our sense of vision and hearing are kind of straightforward. So if you would go to slide number uh, three, the heading is still on the dimensionality of outer space. So whereas vision and audition are based on waves, olfaction is actually a very different kind of animal. So smell is definitely the most intimate of our senses. So when you, for example, smell an apple, you're literally interacting with the object. So this odorant that you're smelling is made up of one, or in most cases, a mixture of molecules that are small and volatile enough to reach deep into the nasal cavity. Okay, so here they will meet one of tens of thousands of cilia that project from the olfactory sensory neurons and then are absorbed onto one of approximately 400 functional olfactory receptors. So some of these receptors are exclusively to specific odorants, whereas others have a broader function. But importantly, how much a given odorant binds to a given receptor reflects the structural, like literally the structural aspect of the odorant molecule. So if you would go to the next slide, which is called how many dimensions. Uh, so it is believed that these receptor types all differ in the relative sensitivity to various odorants. So two odors can only be distinguished if they cause different patterns of activity among these types of receptors. So at least at the, from the neurobiological space of odors, at the very input, this would indicate approximately 400 dimensions. So then the question is, is olfactory perceptual space 400 dimensional? Well, the answer is probably no. Actually, some argue that it's not more than one dimension. And what is this dimension? Well, if you go to the next slide, uh, which is called pleasantness as the main dimension. Well, uh, if you go back, uh, you can go back 50 years of psychophysical research in olfactory perception. And what this research shows is that the main axis or the main dimension of odor is odor pleasantness. And uh, this has been conducted by doing a lot of psychophysical research, but using, for example, multidimensional analysis or scaling. 
so people just rate odors on different ratings, and then you can do this kind of multi-dimensional analysis. Uh, and one of these, uh, the first study that was conducted was actually conducted in the lab where I did my PhD by Birgitta Berglund. Uh, so what she showed was that the main dimension was pleasantness, that is valence, the hedonic aspect of an odor. And the second aspect or the second dimension was edibility, if the thing you're smelling is edible or not. But the main point here is that it's very few dimensions. So it's not 400 dimensions, it's rather one or two dimensions. And the main one is pleasantness. So why is it pleasantness? That's kind of strange, right? You have like 400 active receptors, but still the main thing that they do is to decide the pleasantness. So to understand this point, I think we must study the evolution of olfaction. So if you would go to the next slide, and the next slide, the heading is called, the limited number of dimensions may partially be reflect in the evolution of olfaction. So that's the heading. So most organisms on our planet actually live in an olfactory rather than a visual world. Uh, the evolution of forces shaping olfaction across species have been driven by approach and avoidance behavior. So for example, when organisms approach food or avoid predators, uh, and this is universally, it's really universal of sort across the animal kingdom, including bacteria. So in bacteria, we see something like proto-olfaction in form of bacterial approach avoidance, like chemotaxis. And this is more than 3 billion years old. So this goes way back. And many of these approach avoidance behaviors are hardwired. I guess the most famous ones are the ones that are centered around pheromones. And I'm sure you've heard about pheromones. Humans don't have pheromones, but most other animals have. So for example, uh, pheromone-driven sexual reproduction is very common in, for example, insects. So if you look at this fig in the figure, the left-hand figure shows uh, different types of pheromones for moth. Uh, and for example, they use this kind of sex pheromones uh, to signal different types of information. Uh, so the females send one type and the males send another type. And these are very, very hardwired uh, and they're detected by receptors on their antenna. Uh, other examples from mammals, for example, uh, we know there are pheromones as well in mammals, for example, in mice. Uh, many of them are very innate and uh, Several of them are specific to predator odors. So to give you how hardwired these kind of pheromones are, uh, if you look at the right side, you see a picture of the vormal nasal organ in mice, and then you see a picture of a mice and a cat kind of cuddling with each other. So that mice is a knockout mice. And this was a famous study by Kobavyakova uh, et al. from 2007. It was published in Nature, and what they did was that they did the knockout mice, uh, knocking out the vormonasal sensory neurons. And when they did that, uh, the mice kind of like were not afraid of the cat. Actually, they were kind of curious of the cat. Normally, they run away uh, because it's very hardwired. Uh, so this study showed exactly what kind of mechanisms were that were driving this effect. Uh, 
but it should be noted that humans do not have a warmer nasal organ. So what is what's happening in humans? So if you go to the next slide, and the heading of that is cross-cultural studies of odor perception. So I gave you a kind of a short background about the main dimensional faction, that namely pleasantness. Uh, and we know that it's hardwired in many animals. So how about humans? What determines pleasantness in humans? So if you look at this picture, uh, the pictures, the picture in the middle is, uh, is a can with fermented herring. So basically it's rotten fish, and this is called surströmming in Swedish. Uh, you eat it, a lot of people in the north of Sweden eat this during the summer. Uh, it has been described as the most disgusting odor in the world. It's, it is like really disgusting odor, but people here in Sweden, some people at least, <laughs> really like to eat this. Uh, there are some funny YouTube videos when they give this uh, surströmming to other nations, for example, Americans, and uh, see how they react. You can Google this and check it out. And basically what you see is that most people kind of want to vomit when they uh, smell this. So what's happening here, right? Uh, how come some cultures like this odor and others don't? Uh, it must be something with the culture, right? So something has happened here. The people, the Swedish people have learned to really enjoy this uh, rotten fish. So if you go to the next slide, which is slide number eight in your presentation, uh, the heading is cross-cultural studies of odor perception. So I would say the last 40 years, many studies have compared odor and food perception between cultures. There have been, been a lot of studies on this. And systematically, these studies report a large variation between cultures in how do you perceive odors or foods. And this has resulted in a main dogma that has been, or that is, I guess, uh, uh, that culture is the main factor that shape odor pleasantness in humans. And there's, at the first glance, a lot of evidence that odor pleasantness is shaped by culture. However, these studies have not considered other explanations at least not in depth. So one thing they haven't done is that most of these studies have only tested industrial populations and mostly also Western populations. So if you would go to the next slide, which is slide number nine, uh, the heading is the personal touch human fetuses learn odors from their pregnant mother's diet. So while cultural explanations have been like the main explanation, we know that other factors also impact odor pleasantness. And one of these have been uh, to be, be that are, have been shown to be important are personal experiences. That is, what have you learned as a person? Uh, so in humans, it's clear that odor learning starts early in life and that it shapes odor preferences. For example, there are several studies showing within family disagreement about what food, what kind of food people like. So while the members of family share the same culture, they still have personal preferences. So this must indicate that 
you have something at the personal level. So this kind of shows that learning is powerful. And also studies show that the learning actually starts in uterus. And what you are looking at, this figure you're looking at, these are three, um, no, or sorry, four, these four squares with the babies. So this is a classical study from Charlotte from 2000. So it's kind of cool study. So what they did in this study is that they were giving uh, candy. So flavored sweets that were, uh, that had a specific taste. It was a licorice taste. And they were giving these candies to uh, pregnant mothers, the last weeks of their pregnancy. So the mothers were eating this, but they also had a control group where the mothers were not eating this flavored candy. They were eating other candies, but they were not flavored. So the idea was that if older learning actually starts in uterus, then you should be able to actually affect this, right? You should be able to affect the, how the baby learns the kind of odorants. So after the babies were born, one to eight hours after, they were given uh, either control odors or this uh, sweet, which was flavored with licorice or anise. And figure A there, which is uh, has a like a green um, rectangle around it, that one depicts a baby that was in the experimental group. So what the baby does there is that he or she is licking, uh, doing like licking behavior. And in this study, they studied different types of facial expressions. For example, licking or nose wrinkling or closing the eyes or mouth capping or head turning. And licking is uh, that kind of facial expression indicates that you like something. The other pictures the from B, C and D, those are from uh, the control groups. So these babies didn't get this kind of sweet candy with the, uh, with, the, with the flavor, licorice flavor when they were in utero. And as you can see on the pictures, they're kind of frowning and they are doing this kind of classical head turning. So they don't like this odor. So this study, and this has been replicated, it shows that odor learning can start very, very early. Okay, uh, if you would go to the next slide, which is slide number nine. So the heading of this slide is called odor pleasantness may also be a reflection of the physical world. So, however, although we have the culture aspect and we have this personal aspect, some, have, some researchers also argue that uh, that some part, at least, some part of the older pleasantness is not the result of cultural learning, but is actually innate and engraved in the molecular structure of the odor. So it has, it has nothing to do with learning. And evidence, the first at least evidence for this uh, was first demonstrated by Kahn et al. in 2007. So what Kahn and colleagues did was to apply a principal component analysis to a large set of perceptual ratings of molecules, um, as well as to the features describing the molecular structure of the specific odorants. So when they were doing this, they were able to radically reduce the potential high dimensionality of both odor percepts and the molecular structures. 
So interestingly, pleasantness emerged as the primary axis of odor perception, like older studies have shown before. However, and this is the cool part, the primary axis of molecular structure reflected the primary axis of odor perception. So using their model, this kind of model, they were able to predict, they could predict pleasantness of a novel monomolecular odor just based on the molecular structure alone. And they did this in Americans and Israelis. And this is what you can see uh, uh, in these figures. So this, the first figure is Americans, the second one is are Israeli Arabs, and the last one are Israeli Jewish. And you can see that quite, I mean, it's impressive uh, prediction there, right? So they're just based on the first dimension that is pleasantness. And they can actually, or they could actually predict how people would uh, rate the different types of odorants. So if you would go to the next slide, which is slide number, uh, let's see, it's slide number 11. <clears throat> so that study I will talk about, that was 2007. 10 years later, there was a very interesting study by Keller et al. So this was published in Science. And what they did was that they uh, developed several types of machine learning algorithms to see how how much they could predict this kind of behaviors from just based on the molecular structure. And what they were able to do were that they could actually predict semantics, semantic descriptors that people used when they were talking about odors just based on the molecular structure. So for example, they could uh, predict if a person would use the word spicy or fruity about a specific odor. Uh, and specifically for pleasantness, uh, their best model, which was a random forest model, uh, could predict observed data at 0.71, which is, I mean, that's very impressive. Uh, and this is what you can see in this figure. It shows, they could also predict intensity. That is how intense do you, can you, do you feel these odors? So they could both uh, predict intensity and pleasantness and all of these uh, labels, that is semantic descriptors. So uh, if you will go to the next slide, So this is slide number 12. Uh, and the heading is, we are the weird. So this study I was talking about, the Keller one, and also other studies that have done similar things, trying to link the molecular structure to odor pleasantness have been criticized because they have been based on ratings from mainly Western or industrialized people uh, or industrial societies. And this is problematic considering that the dogma is that culture shapes odor pleasantness, right? So if you te are testing very similar cultures, then, well, maybe that's not so impressive, right? Uh, like if you, by default, always test industrialized people with similar lifestyles and experiences, uh, and importantly, who are exposed to a global fragrance and flavor industry, then it's kind of hard to draw any conclusions about what actually affects odor perception, like be it culture, personal taste, or molecular structure. And it should be noticed here that most odorants, at least in the West, that you 
eat and that are not coming from whole food are produced by a few companies, right? And these companies produce almost all fragrances and they are like, yeah, they are in all types of products like soaps and uh, yeah, foods, different types of foods. Uh, so people really share the same kind of odors because uh, they are restricted to this industry, industrial made odorants. And this is really problematic. So if you would go to the next slide, and the next slide is slide number uh, 12. Uh, no, sorry, go back, to, <laughs> go back to the slide I was talking about. Uh, sorry, go back one slide, still stay on slide number 12, I think it is. We are the weird, yeah. Uh, so the, the main point I want to make here is uh, most of the studies that have linked molecular structure to odor pleasantness have been limited to what is in the literature called weird societies. That's why I wrote We Are the Weird. So these are, this acronym stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic Populations, which is basically most of Western populations. And the, the reason why this is problematic and the reason why, uh, I mean, this, is, this goes back not only to psychology, basically most behavioral disciplines only test uh, weird populations. And often in psychology, at least, these populations are psychology students, which, uh, I mean, of course, uh, have nothing against psychology students, have been one myself, but uh, they're not a representative for the whole world, right? So uh, that's a major problem because if you want to claim a specific scientific truth, for example, like the dogma that culture is the main determinant of odor perception, well, and say something general about human behavior, you, you cannot base it on weird societies alone. It's just like, it, it, that is a very, very problematic way to conduct research. So uh, don't be weird. So if you go to the next slide, so that slide is number 13, right? Uh, and the heading of that is, what are the determinants of odor balance perception that is odor pleasantness? So what I've talked about, uh, there are three different factors that this variation could come from. So we have culture factors, that is, if the variation comes from culture factors, then people within the culture should be more similar to each other compared to other groups, right? Uh, personal factors, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So independent of culture and molecular structure, it's just learning, personal learning. Or universal factors, odor perception is determined by the molecular structure of the odorant. So it's kind of unclear how to reconcile these perspectives. Uh, like. Which one of these is true? Like, is odor preference culturally relative? Is it personal or is it universally constrained by a molecular structure? Or, which is probably more reasonable to think, maybe it's a combination of all of these variables, right? And if it is a combination of these three different variables, to what degree does each factor contribute, right? 
So to be able to answer this question, it is necessary to assess these three factors simultaneously. But this has unfortunately not been done. However, to quantify the separate role of culture, intersubject variability, that is personal taste, and chemical structure on odor pleasantness, it is necessary to study groups that are minimally influenced by common odor experience. So this has to be groups with little to no con contact whatsoever with the global fragrance and flavor industry and to other forms of urbanized lifestyles and preferably also very limited contact with each other, right? So that, that would be the best way to actually tangle out, uh, this tangle this, these three factors from each other. So if you would go to the next slide and this slide has no heading. It's just a picture of the different groups we tested. So given this specific question, uh, we basically set out to see to what extent culture, personal taste, and molecular structure shapes odor presentness. So to do this, we tested 225 subjects from nine non-Western groups. Okay, So critically, seven of these nine belong to small-scale societies. So three of these groups were hunter-gatherers. So they were living in the rainforest or in the desert. Four other groups belong to small-scale societies, such as subsistent agriculturalists or Sweden horticulturalists or shoreline foragers. Importantly, these, uh, neither of these groups had contact with, the, with the, like, an industrial global fragrance and flavor industry. We also included two non-Western groups, but they were from urban populations. Uh, and before I go through the groups, I would like to highlight, really highlight that the research was conducted in collaboration with field workers, like linguists, feed linguists, that work with indigenous groups. And this is critical because it would have been impossible to get this kind of data without them. So they were just amazing to work with. So if we look at the specific groups that we <clears throat> studied, uh, we studied the Mani, so, which is a hunter-gatherer group, a population of about, a total population of about 300 people. And they live in the tropical rainforest in Thailand. Uh, we studied urban Thai people from a quite big city in Thailand. So th these are basically urban dwellers. Uh, and the climate there is tropical savanna, I would say, cl climate. We studied the Semelai, uh, which are a group of Sweden horticulturalists. And they live in a tropical rainforest in the Malaysia. We studied the Semakberi, which is a hunter-gatherer group living very close to the Semelai. Uh, they also live in the tropical rainforest. We studied the Mahmeri, and they are shoreline foragers, uh, and they also live in at the tropical coast. Uh, so these were at the Asian populations. We also tested groups uh, in South America, for example, the Imambura Quechua. So they use their subsistence agriculturalists, and they live at the temperate highlands. We also tested Kachi, and there are farmer foraging community living in the tropical rainforest. And then we had Deseri, uh, live in Mexico and coastal desert, and they are hunter-gatherer fishers traditionally. Uh, 
And then we had the Mexican urban dwellers from Mexico City and the climate climate there is subtropical highland climate. And then New Yorkers, which we didn't test directly, but we used data from New Yorkers, uh, <clears throat> urban dwellers, and New York is basically subtropical climate. So these uh, were our groups that we used or that we uh, studied. Artin, I am oh, so sorry to interrupt. I hate when people do this. Can I ask you one question about the groups and then I'll shut up? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. No problem. Ask. I was wondering if you knew of if, uh, what the degree of genetic overlap would be because, and this is so fascinating. I, I love this. I'm curious to know if um, there could be a genetic component to this. Like, um, I understand the functional and the location yes, difference sure, in culture, sure. but if there's any mixing, like in New York, it could be you pick from one population. I'm just curious to know what you think the relevance so, or the potential impact of genetics could be on this. Thank you. Yeah, I think we let our um, guest finish his discussion. Often they cover those topics as well that we've been asking anyway. And, and that can also be uh, thrown in the room chat. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Lisa. So uh, I, I will answer, so I think the, Best way for me to answer that question is when I finish the talk, because for sure, genetics will play a role. And you're right. For example, the New Yorkers we used here were like mixed population uh, because it's New York. Uh, so that will definitely impact this data. Uh, but let me come back to that. And that's a very important question. And I will definitely address that at the end of the talk. Uh, so if you would go to the next slide, and that slide is, I guess, slide number 15. Could it be 15? Uh, let me see. Yeah, 15. Um, so it's the heading method. So here, I just want to give you a short description of what we did. So basically, what we did, we picked 10 monomolecular odors from the Keller et al. study, uh, the one I was talking about. Uh, so that study covered a wide range of pleasantness, uh, like of the pleasantness space. So we basically uh, took the ratings from these New Yorkers. There were 49 New Yorkers that were giving ratings to a lot of odorants, uh, 460 something odorants. Uh, and we picked 10 of these monomolecular odorants. So they were kind of covering the whole space from very pleasant to very unpleasant. And uh, so picking from these 476 odors, that's actually written that in the, in the slide, I see that now. Uh, so the task we used was a very simple task and uh, we have to use a very simple task because uh, the use of scales in rating is not the norm in these communities. So what people think it's, to be tested is a simple thing, but it's not really. It's a kind of weird thing to do, right? So what we had people do in our study was to rank order these 10 odors. And they had to rank order them from the most pleasant to the most unpleasant. Uh, so what we use were this kind of sniffing sticks. They are basically pens that you just put in the odorant in, uh, and then you can just smell them. And we put this, pens, uh, we kind of randomly ordered them in front of the subject. So it's kind of face the subject and the participant first smell of the, all of the pens, all of the odorants in front of them. And then they ordered them, the pens from the most pleasant to the most unpleasant from their left to the right. 
right? So it's kind of a simple task. You get these 10 orders, please rank order them. Okay, so that was the task, and we did this across the nine groups. Uh, and then we had the data from the New Yorkers that we could compare to uh, compare with. Okay, so if you go to the next slide, which is slide number 16. And this slide, the heading is results, basically, pleasantness rankings across individuals and cultures. So these figures, this figure you're seeing now, this colorful figure, uh, well, basically what we did was we used the within culture mean ranking for each odorant. Uh, so what we found was that odor balance rankings, odor pleasantness rankings correlate strongly and positively across all cultures uh, with a correlation coefficient of 0.82. So each color patch here represents the integer ranking. Uh, and you can see this at, uh, at your right, that one individual from one culture uh, and the culture are indicated at the bottom uh, gave to one odorant and the odorants are indicated on the y-axis. And the broad column on the far left, uh, sorry, on the far right uh, represents the average ranking for each odorant across all the individuals. And you, when you just look at this, you kind of see that, well, there is definitely structure here, right? It kind of goes from blue to red, and blue here represents uh, the most pleasant, and red represents the most unpleasant. So just by looking at this, you kind of see that way. Seems to be quite a high correlation across these cultural distinct groups, right? Okay, uh, so let's see how this specifically, the degree of these contributions for each factor. So if you go to the next slide, which is slide number 17, I think. And it's called, what are the unique contributions? So what we did here was that we did different types of modeling, but basically all types of modeling told the same story. So when estimating the influence of culture, individual variability, that is personal taste, uh, and universal structure and odor balance or odor pleasantness, uh, we show that culture explains less than 6% 6, 6 of the proportion of variance, while 54% uh, of the variance is due to individual variability. And the universal structure explains approximately 41% of the rankings, right? Uh, and that's kind of <laughs> not according to the dogma at all. So we next asked whether results are driven by consistency across individuals and culture, culture. So if you look at the figure here, the first figure to your left is the specific proportion for each uh, of the factors, culture, individual, and odorant. So that's the observed data. Uh, at the right side, you will see the distribution across all subjects. And these figures cannot tell us uh, that these data are not driven by, for example, the most unpleasant odors. Uh, so, in fact, it seems that all odorants show comparable variance across individuals and cultures. So, this is true for the pleasant odors, and it's as much true as for the unpleasant odors. So, it's not that only the unpleasant odors are driving this effect. It's for all of the odors. Uh, 
So what, what does this tell us, right? So we have 6% culture. And actually, it's less than 6% to be, it's, I think it was 5.6 something. And that's actually close to what you would say. Well, I think 4% is like a chance level here. So if you would go uh, to the next slide, which is slide number 18 with the heading molecular structure as the driver of universality. So what we did next was that uh, if it is the case, like if it is the case that odor pleasantness is to a large part universal and that this is based on the molecular structure, then given this, you should be able to predict odor pleasantness directly. So specifically, if molecular properties of odorants are the primary determinant of universality, the mean rank order from each culture should be predictable by a model, this kind of models we used uh, in the Keller study, by a model trained using pleasantness rankings made by a single culture. So what we did that we, we used the remaining 466 odorants from this big pool of 400 and uh, 76 odorants from the original New York City data. So these are ratings made by New Yorkers. So, and then we excluded our 10 test odorants and we build a predictive model and we use the best random forest algorithm from this Keller et al study. Uh, we then computed the rank order similarity between all pairs of individuals, uh, including the model and uh, using Kendall's tau. So if you look at the figure A, so that's figure at on your left. So figure A shows that the correlation of odor pleasantness rankings between each individual and other individuals from their culture, which is the, the x-axis, is similar to the correlation between each individual and the entire population studied here, right? Uh, so critically in figure B, which is on your right side, you will see that for each and every culture, the within culture mean rank order were, was more highly correlated with the predictions from the model uh, than with any random participants from the same culture. So in other wor words, a universal model trained on responses of New Yorkers to an independent set of odorants was at least as good a predictor of the data uh, of then the data from the same culture in the sense, same set of odorants. So we could use totally different uh, odorants from a very different <laughs> culture, New Yorkers, uh, and we could actually predict pleasantness rankings better than we could do from just studying the participants from the same culture. This is kind of incredible, right? Uh, this kind of shows that the molecular structure here is very important. It actually does something fundamental. Uh, and in contrast, the culture seems to be, well, at best, very weak contributor. So if you go to the last slide or the, not the last slide, but the next slide, uh, it's the conclusion slide. I think it's slide number 19. So basically the conclusion we can draw from this data is that 
the dogma that culture is the main determinant seems to be wrong. In fact, it has little impact on order pleasantness, uh, very little impact. Uh, importantly, a substantial part of order pleasantness is universal and can be predicted from the molecular structure of the odorant. However, personal factors are also very important. So beauty is partially in the eye of the beholder. And with that, I would say like one take home message with this study that is not related to my study, but to studies generally, I would say is never make definitive statements about human behavior without actually testing a diverse set of humans. So uh, I think it is very important that we consider this when studying human behavior. Uh, even things that seem like intuitive, like for example, culture affects like how we perceive odors, even those things can be wrong, or at least not as definitive as you think. So if you go to the last slide, so these are my collaborators, all the awesome uh, field workers and other people I worked with. So I really want to give a big thanks to them and to the founders. Uh, really, the uh, I cannot express my uh, gratitude to the field workers. They are really incredible people. They have working with these groups for years. Some of them have worked with these indigenous groups for almost 30 years. So they are really, they know their stuff, basically. So uh, that's it. Now I can answer questions. Yes, thank you yes, so thank much. Thank you so much. Amazing presentation. Sorry for, Sorry the... for the. I think maybe if you mute yourself. So I, I, yeah. <laughs> sure. Could, could I start? Maybe I could just start by addressing the question I got oh, during yeah. the talk. Yeah. So, okay. Let's do that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I have to jump off the phone actually um in in two moments two minutes um so yeah i just i want to say I, I, it's funny that i had the exact same question i was in uh copenhagen they i don't know if you know this they have a science museum there for kids yeah well, yeah. For yeah, yeah yeah and there you can check if you can smell musk and so you know my family has been so interested in that you know knowing that they're your olfactory nerve is just like your brain is you know sort of in contact with the outside environment and, and also just the idea that, um, you know, of introducing taste and smell preference to babies um, through mother's milk, but that genetic link is so powerful with the musk. So, yeah, yeah so I, that, that's very important. And, and can I yeah, say one so, thing? Yeah. Because I really have to jump off and I want to hear um, that what you mentioned right in the beginning about how <laughs> how odor ties us to our history and ties memory together it's yeah. you know it's just so so powerful and and so yeah thank you i i was hiking with my daughter yesterday in in an area that we used to live in in the hills and we we smelled sage and it was it was like we were watching you know a movie of our past so um yeah, yeah it's powerful. so thank you so much for for that no problem uh so let me address the genetic part of this. So uh, we did not uh, genotype these people, but of course, if we would, we would have, then we would be able to explain, I'm guessing, more of the variants. So for example, uh, when we are talking about personal taste, for example, so even within families, there could be diff genetic differences, right? 
So some people are actually blind to some odors. They have a specific anosmia for some specific odors, and, and that is genetically determined. So genetics definitely impact how we perceive odors. So if you have the receptor or not, it's very important. And of course, this, this, this genetic variation uh, is different depending on where in the world you are living, right? Or where your ancestors have been. <clears throat> so we know that there are differences between populations. Uh, th this we know. Uh, but then the question is how strong is it for the pleasantness ranking, right? So mostly when it comes to the genetics, uh, at least when it comes to odorants, it's can you feel the odor or not? Like, can you smell the odor? Are you blind to the odor or not? You, or do you think the odor is intense or not? So the intensity of the odor. So that it seems to be very uh, driven by the genetics. However, the question if you like it or not, if that is driven by specific genetics that is different across populations, or if that is driven by other types of genetics that is literally hardwired. So let's say that you have different genetics, but you still perceive the odor. Will that shape odor perception or will all of the all persons have the same pleasantness feeling for these odors? So I think the, when it comes to pleasantness, it's really determined by the molecular structure. So if you can feel smell the odor, then you probably share a lot of the variance with other people. So that, that, that's my point. And, but but it, it, I, I want to say something about the way we did this study. So uh, odor perception is also very much context. It's dependent on the context, right? So for, for example, if you would smell, uh, well, let's say you smell cheese, right? So in one context, the smell of cheese can be wonderful odor. And in another context, not so much, right? It could be really disgusting. So we know that learning is important and that this kind of context is important for how you perceive an odor. When we did our study, it was kind of context-free, right? We were giving them odors in pens without any context. You just were given these pens. Uh, so without the context, it seems to be really determined by the molecular structure, or at least a very huge part of the variation determined of the molecular structure. However, we believe, and we're studying this in our lab now, we're studying more of the uh, the mechanism, the, neuro the uh, neuronal mechanism of this, we believe that the context actually shapes this initial odor uh, percept by top-down regulation. And this happens quite instantly. So if you have the context, then you could actually change this hardwired uh, odor preference. Th that is at least what we believe, and this is what we have. We have shown this in a couple of uh, studies now, or, and we are really studying this uh, at the moment. Yeah, other questions? I wanted to mention, wanted to mention an experience an that experience. a lot of people have had, and that is the asparagus urine odor. Uh, when you eat yeah. asparagus, it makes your urine smell. And a lot of right. people think, well, that doesn't affect me. Well, yeah. 
it makes everyone urine smell. The difference yeah. is that they may not have the exactly the, the receptor. receptor. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so not everyone can smell it, but if you eat asparagus, right. your urine will smell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people are have a specific anosmia. You just don't know to what, right? Uh, there are so many odorants out there, right? You, you won't be able to smell all of them. Uh, or, or at least you will feel some odors being way less intense than others. Like for some people, some odors are super intense. Uh, so, and so that's for sure. Genetics is important at least for perceiving the odor. I have a question on that very specific example of asparagus, because I can't help but wonder if, um, if there's a difference in gene expression, if actually those metabolites or the odorant actually don't show up because it's being processed different by the individual uh, allergy. Right, I, I don't know that, but of course, if they don't metabolize then well, then I can, then well, it, it has nothing to do with odor, right? Uh, but that is, you could easily test that in the lab, so. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see if there were any experiments. I'll have to go and check the, <laughs> if there's anything like that, it's just that. I don't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I don't think there is, I mean, I know there's a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of experiments on specific anosmia for different kinds of odors. That's where like, there's tons of those. I don't know if for asparagus, I'm not sure. They, they've they've identified this specific uh, receptor gene. Yeah. Okay. So then they they could easily test that. Right? Yeah. Right. Th that gene gives you the ability to to smell that particular odor. It's weird. <laughs> well. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, I have that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. did, did your study include uh, any short term changes in odor perception, like for example? uh if you work or if you if someone wears a lot of uh fragrance they may not be able to uh smell it as much as the people around them and so the people around yeah. them they, they're wearing way too much fragrance so, yeah so that's interesting so, uh, not in this study but i have studied that uh yeah and we are studying that so uh, the, the interesting thing with olfaction the sense of smell that is totally different compared to other senses is that olfaction when you get habituated to odor, it's a central mechanism, right? So compare that to audition. For example, if you sit in a room and you have a watch in the background, like ticking. After a while, you just you won't hear it, right? You just like will cancel that out. But if someone like drives your attention towards that watch and says, like, can you hear it? You will be able to hear it. Like you will still hear that tick, 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 tick. That is impossible with odor. After about 20 to 40 seconds of continuous odor presentation of a specific odorant, you will get centrally habituated, right? And this happens at the piriform cortex, the olfactory cortex, uh, and there is no way for you to go back. I can't say like, try to smell it again. There, you won't be able to do that. You have to have a, well, at least, I don't know, 20 minutes pause or something like that. And still you will feel less strong. So when you have these people that are wearing the same perfume each day, probably put it on their like clothes. So they have this perfume all the time, probably in their houses or in their apartments. Like it, after a while, they won't feel anything. So in the morning they wake up and they're like, hey, wait, I, I don't feel anything. Just put on more. And they end up like pouring them like the whole perfume bottle over so, so that, that's the problem with olfaction. 
Well, I don't think it's a problem. I, I, I think it. Um, well, it's not it, a problem for the Apache. It's the problem with for the people around these, <laughs> the people yeah, wearing them. I think it 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 uh, that's the way it works because it prevents yeah. an overload of information. Uh, yeah, then you for sure. Be sensitive to other odors. Right. Which right. Right. And th th that's the main point that you should be always uh, sensitive to novel odors. Right. So th th that's actually why the system works like that. It's interesting to consider a scenario like aversion to alcohol toxicity. Anyone who has drank a little bit too much of this certain type of liquor. Um, they're averse to it for a certain period of time, maybe indefinitely, I suppose, depending on the level of the trauma. But it's, uh, it can be, I don't know, how would you factor that into these sorts of experiments? Like the, oh, I don't know if I got like the smell of alcohol or. Yeah, like you drink too much tequila. Yeah, and then like you don't want to smell tequila forever, but that that aversion didn't exist before there was a, a traumatic experience with it. Yeah, I mean, so we know that this kind of learning, this especially when it comes to food or like poison, when coming when you get food poisoning, that is super strong conditioning, right? There is the probably one of the strongest way condition. Uh, so for sure that will affect it. We know that's that's why. The olfactory system is so plastic, so you can learn these things. Uh, there are some studies that show that it is also easy to, like, you can recondition it. You can, uh, but the memory will always be there. And if it's food poisoning or, as you said, like alcohol poisoning, then it will be super strong. That's that's how the olfactory system works. And again, it comes back to the pleasantness thing, like the main. At least from an evolution point of view, is that you should stay away from things that are harmful. For example, things, foods that are poisonous. So if you eat something and that makes you sick, well, you need to do that once, and you will never touch that again. Uh, and that is very, ideally, very... ideally, ideally, so, yeah. so again, that brings us to the how you can override the system, right? And obviously, you can. You can change uh, like brand. You don't need to drink tequila. You can drink vodka. But yeah. And these are survival mechanisms. Are survival the interesting mechanisms. part is the the other side of the equation, where it's not survival in like your bodily survival, but survival perhaps in a reproductive sense or in, in a recreational sense. Mm. People do need uh, recreation to survive. You just keep going on. Um, you know, all, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy type of thing. Yeah. I mean, for sure, we have, I mean, the, the learning is important and we know that it's important not only for uh, learning that something is poisonous or not, but also because it helps you to, for example, like when you get the, when you have a baby, <laughs> you or you your partner's odors. That's also learning, right? Uh, uh, and it's very important for getting attachment, for example, like baby attachment and even partner attachments. We know these things, they are important. And we also know, and we know a lot of things we know about olfaction doesn't come from studies, it comes from studies where 
people have lost their sense of smell. Because normally, when we talk about the sense of smell, people are like, hey, it's not that important, right? Compared to vision. And for sure, right? I mean, I personally, I would like, I would rather lose my sense of smell than my vision. That That's, that's for sure the, the case. However, I don't think people really realize how important it is until they lose the sense of smell. And now, uh, after COVID, where so many people have lost their sense of smell, or at least decreased, uh, like really diminished, diminished it. A lot of uh, people are anosmic or hyposmic. They kind of realize how important it is. And, and it is important in the sense where you were describing for the pleasure. And it's not a trivial thing. It's very important, like food preferences and how it affects food uh, consumption. If you don't have the sense of smell, you will eat very poorly. In fact, there's a lot of studies showing that if you lose your sense of smell, it is a strong indicator and predictor of preterm death, right? It's like, that's the case. And it also be linked to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so it's definitely not trivial and it's very important for both partner and sex, but food. So yeah, I think it's, um, you shouldn't underestimate the sense of smell. It's, it's the oldest and there's a reason why we have it. Yeah, it's critical for sure. Uh, Dr. Alika. Hi there. Thanks for a great talk, Artin. Um, uh, and uh, I have a question for you from my uh, work as a clinical hypnotherapist and also stage hypnotist. So it turns okay. out that when you're doing a stage hypnosis show, the easiest hallucinations to induce are olfactory. Like within a minute or two, I can just tell people you're smelling this thing that's not there and they will smell it, or you can't smell anything and they can't smell it. So. Uh, could you speculate on what may be mediating that? It's, it feels like it's some kind of central mechanism, yeah. um, but what's so, going on there? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I want to study this. I have actually, <laughs> I have tested this just not really experimentally, but in my classrooms when I, with students and just for fun, I just like done exactly what you're saying. Like, oh, can, does, do people smell this odor? Like, oh, it smells like, and I just make up something. And people start sniffing around like, yeah, yeah, I feel. And of course, after a while I say like, I mean, I just made that up. I don't know. I don't think anyone has studied this. For sure, it must be central. However, the question is this. And uh, so what I, the reason why I, I'm interested in this is because I actually did my PhD on mm -hmm. olfactory imagery. Like it's the ability to imagine odors. So that's my, where I come from. Like I studied that in memory. Uh, so there is this notion that uh, we're able to make images in all our sensory system. And that's for sure true for vision and audition. I mean, people can uh, experience if they just like close their eyes or try to imagine a, like the picture of a dog or a lemon. However, for olfaction, that is very, very different. And it seems to be super hard, right? Very, very hard to do that. So I did a lot of experiments on that. And at the beginning, when I did experiments on people, I was giving them, for example, I would like try to imagine the smell of uh, orange, right? And rank like from one to five, five being perfectly like a normal olfactory experience and one being, I don't feel anything or I can't imagine anything. And what I noticed, <laughs> this is the critical thing when I come to, what I noticed was that people said, almost all of them said five. Oh, I can imagine the odor of, 
uh, orange. And I was sitting there and I was testing them. I was like, how is this possible? Because I cannot do this. And then it hit me like, maybe they don't understand the question or maybe olfaction is so different from other sensors that we, we lack the sense of, let's say, metacognition. Like we have way less conscious abilities to access our olfactory states. So what I did was that I redid the experiment, but this time I asked the same question, but after they had said, oh, it smells like, uh, no, after they said like, oh, it's five, it smells like a real odor. So they were really convinced that they could experience the odor. I actually gave them a real orange. And I said, does it smell like this? And then all of the subjects said, no. And they said, well, then it smells kind of like one or two at best. So what this tells me when it comes to this kind of hallucination is that maybe people are not actually experiencing the odor as we think they are. Uh, maybe they're just thinking that they are doing it. You see what I mean? It's, it's like it's a difference between actually perceiving the odor and thinking that you are perceiving the odor. So th th I think there, th that's what's going on. I I'm not sure because th th there's no study specifically for this. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. you were to stick their heads on MRI, it would probably light up different parts of their brains, depending. But one thing I can so, tell so you. I, I have done that also. Uh, and oh, yeah. Well, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have done that. Uh, I asked them to pretend. And what happens, and this is, I guess this is why I'm not sure that they actually experienced odors. So they do. So the, the olfactory piriform cortex, the olfactory cortex do light up, right? It does light up. Uh, however, uh, what also lights up is hippocampus, way more than it does with normal olfactory reception. Uh, so what I'm thinking is that maybe they're thinking of or experiencing uh, memories where they had the odor. So you, kind of, you have the whole context of the memory, right? But maybe not the percept per se. That at least what I think. I, I don't know. I, I'm still like unsure of what's going on. Yeah, the, the, the only thing I can tell for sure is that the pleasantness, unpleasantness axis is accurate because the reactions they have to unpleasant odors is, you know, you see in their facial expressions like, yeah. uh, but what's actually happening deep inside in terms of like one-to-one -one correspondence, you know, was that particular receptor activated? Who knows? So uh, I think this is actually sorry, the, model, yeah. the model of the uh, the odor memory is just not complex enough to be exact, and because the the uh, the odor sensation when you're actually smelling an actual odor is probably very complex. So your memory of an odor might you might only be uh, smelling a part. Are, are remembering a part of that uh, odor. Yeah, memory. that's true. But, but but visual images are also super complex, and you could imagine them quite easily, right? Well, I mean, you think you are, but maybe you're you're you know you're just filling in the gaps, you know, just like yeah, that's true. That's true. You, maybe you are. I mean, at least you're not probably not as well as you think you are, that's for sure. I mean, I, I want to do one experiment that, so we are developing new techniques in the lab so we can actually measure uh, receptors in humans, like from the uh, sensory nerves. Uh, and one of the things I want to do is exactly this. So I want to like, have them imagine odors to see if there's actually top-down information that goes to the sensory nerves. Now, I mean, 
that's of course a Hail Mary. I don't think it will, but if it would, then that would be like definitive, like uh, proof that it actually can affect uh, the perception. That would be a very interesting experiment uh, to carry out. <laughs> Vasudev, you had a question? Yeah, uh, thank you for the talk, Artin. Um, <clears throat> so I want to get a better understanding of this uh, statement you made about the dimensionality of olfaction being uh, close to one. Yeah. So is that just, um, it, I mean, okay, so it's to play devil's advocate. Is it just that that's the only axis along which we can make, we can do experiments to distinguish odors? Or is there some, like, what, what leads us to believe that this is analogous to the RGB type um, well, distinctions? That's a, in... Well, that's the problem, right? So when we are working with odorants, we're not working with waves. We, we cannot, so what, what, so what can we measure? So we could look at the stimulus, right? So there's a stimulus problem here. And th then it comes down to chemistry, right? You can look at thousands of different of things. And that's what these models do. They go through. I think this model we used had like five, almost 5,000 different uh, molecular properties uh, that we just put in. So it's a black box problem. We just put that in and then it uh, kind of spits out the numbers. Uh, so you have that. So you could have a gazillion, like basically you could have so many dimensions and you have these 400 uh, receptors, functional receptors. Uh, so I guess the question is like, w when we're talking about how to measure it, we, we have to basically kind of start from the perception, right? And when you do the perception studies, you ask people, like you give them odorants and you have them rank them at different dimensions. So you could basically ask them like, how does this smell? And they can say, well, this smells fruity, or this smells woody, uh, this is edible, or I don't like this odor, or they use maybe different terms of that. This is uh, kind of disgusting, or this is pleasant, or whatever like terms they use. And uh, that's our limit. Our limit is language. Uh, how do you describe this odor? So one interesting point that you made here is that, yes, and it's good that you are played the devil's advocate because one of the limitations, and I, have, I didn't talk about this here, is that most of these studies that have uh, done this kind of ratings have, again, have done it on Westerners. And one notion that we think is a universal notion is that people are very bad in naming odors, right? And you could test this at home. You can go home and pick out different odors and do a blind test. Like even the most common odors, you'll be super hard for you to name it. Now, this has been argued that the olfactory sense is different from all other senses and that it has like weak connections to temporal regions, to language regions. Uh, however, uh, my collaborator on this specific project, Asfa Majid at uh, University of Oxford, what she has shown in her studies is that when she's looking at specific populations, uh, in her case, hunter-gatherers, uh, so in these populations, they have they are very good in naming odors, but how, what they do when they name odors, they don't use object-based descriptors. So normally, when if I ask you, what does this smell? You will say, say, well, it smells like X. It smells like lemon. You won't say it smells like and give an abstract definition, right? You don't say, well, it smells like blue, right? 
<laughs> but these populations, they actually do that. They give an abstract definition. So they say it smells like whatever word they use now. And when they do this, they are very good in naming odors. So maybe if we have done these studies on other populations, we would have been able to actually create another dimension. And this is also kind of indicated in Asfa's work, because she also shows that another dimension that pops out is if it's edible or not, the odorant, but there are also other dimensions popping out. I don't remember them now exactly, but uh, yeah. But the point here is that, yeah, we are definitely limited. No, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, maybe the best uh, experiment to do would be among dogs or, you know, like some creature which is using its nose a lot more than we are. And I'm just fascinated yeah. by what kind of representations they might have. Yeah, but you know what? And this is also kind of funny. It's, it's actually a, a very common, uh, what do you call it, uh, myth, basically, that humans have bad sense of smell. So this is like, oh, humans have such a poor sense of smell. And like compared to mice or rodents, the, the truth is this, humans have better smell than all of animal, all of mammals tested except for dogs. So we are way better than mice and rats, like way better. Uh, and squirrel monkeys and whatever you have tested, right? So we are way more sensitive to different sets of odors than most mammals tested, for the exception of dogs. So dogs are like crazy good. So, but, but the point That's is very that interesting. Humans, yeah, humans are not bad at all. So, and mostly this, when, when people think about this, because they look at the olfactory bulb, which is the first processing stage of like, of like odors, right? And if you look at the rodent, a huge part of the brain of the rodent is the olfactory bulb. So then the argument is like, yeah, of course, then you have this super huge olfactory bulb and they should be super good at it. But that's kind of a false way to see it because A, our olfactory bulb is way bigger, not proportionally, but it's, it is way bigger. And more importantly, we have this huge, huge brain that can process odors in a way more complex way than rodents can do. So uh, yeah, I think, I think it's like that humans have a super good sense of smell. Fascinating. I wanted to check in really quickly with you about how much longer we have the honor of your presence. I'm sure there's, we could probably go on with questions for a while. You sound definitely very enthusiastic, but I just wanted to do a time check. Well, well I could go on for a couple of minutes more. That's, there's no problem. Okay. So then Frank's just joined the stage and then I have a, a final question and then we can wrap it up. Frank, it's yours. Well, actually, I'm, I'm confused a little bit by now, but I had a question towards the connection between odor and taste because uh, my thought is kind of the way that uh, odor and taste are pretty close. So does anything you said about odor in this uh, uh, talk translate to to taste in very similar ways? Yeah, most of it. Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. And I should have probably have gone into that more. So of course, you're completely right. Most of what we think is taste or in this case, flavor is actually old-fashioned like so taste is only the basic uh elements like you have salt you have sour you have sweet you have umami etc like bitter so that's taste however flavor is the interaction with the olfactory sense 
so without olfaction, you don't have any flavor, right? And then the interesting part with flavor is it's not only that it's interacting with olfaction and taste, it's also an interaction with the trigeminal system, which is like very important because the trigeminal system, which is system of nerves in your face and your mouth, uh, those actually also shape odor perception. So one classical example is if you smell uh, like menthol or something like that, and if you get these kind of sensations, kind of get burning sensations. Uh, so all of these different sensory inputs will impact flavor. Now, how does, like no one has really studied the super day, like the interaction in the way we have done uh, with flavor. And also, I should be, should be noticed that in this study, we, we, which we, we looked at monomolecular odors, right? But most odorants that you are like, if you smell a rose, I think the average rose has about like 250 different odorants in it. So it's a mixture. Most of the odors you are feeling every day are mixtures. Uh, and of course, that makes everything way more complicated. But we don't have the models to do that. It's 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 too. And we don't know how to do that right at the moment. There are some groups that work to actually try to predict mixtures, but that's very, very hard. But from a principal point of view, it shouldn't be that different, at least not for the olfactory part of the mixtures, right? So the olfactory part should still uh, impact the, the part of the flavor, partially depending on the molecular structure. Then of course you will have all these interactions, which, well, I don't know how that would turn out, but yeah, you're right. Uh, olfaction is very important for flavor. That's exactly what I was going to get onto in terms of the mixture. I was going to ask if most of these sorts of experiments are carried out under synthetic or biological odorant agents. And I. Yeah. So again, so this is it depends. I mean, you can do, and we are doing experiments with mixtures. Uh, we to see to study this but when you do these kind of experiments when you want to predict something and use at least these kind of models there are other models developed by uh, for example the group by Sobel in at Weizmann Institute so they can actually do with mixtures so they have developed different models where you can actually put the several uh, odorants and they can kind of give you uh, different type of descriptors of the odor, how you will perceive the odor uh, however what we are doing uh, at the moment we don't have the capacity uh, when I mean, I don't. Nobody knows how to do it, basically. So we are stuck with monomolecular odors. Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's the limitations for now. Uh, but uh, yeah, but for the yeah, brain, yeah, for the brain imaging that we use definitely we use mixtures, right? Uh, because that's the most natural way, and we try to use uh, ecological valid odors because that's the best. So if you want to give an odor of the apple, we literally give them the odor of an apple. A local a apple, local an apple. international apple, That's a, that can be an interesting uh, play with yeah. you, right? <laughs> so, 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 this, that's a, also a very interesting point that how do you, like there are so many different apples or pears, but how can you, but you can still smell one and say that is an apple, right? Uh, so, uh, that's kind of interesting because they will be very different from a mixture point of view. So be many different types of 
mixtures or odorants in this type of mixture, but still you will be able to say that this is a pair and the other one is also a pair, but they taste and smell very different from each other. And this kind of pattern uh, matching um, is like it's the, the olfactory system really tuned to do this, try to categorize different types of uh, yeah objects together. I think it would be really critical in terms of people's palate and sensitivity. Like we were discussing, some people are anosmic to to odors one, two, three, and also, I mean, you can blind taste test some people and give them things one and two and three, and they get of everything wrong. Like they just they don't know. Yeah. So uh, we're coming to the top of the hour. Did you have any closing comments? Did we, um, was there anything you wanted to mention that you didn't have a chance to mention yet? Like in the, in, the uh, in fact, no, any not, important consideration? No, not that I can think of. I guess uh, I probably missed a lot of things and said a lot of stupid things, but <laughs> nothing that pops up right now. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for this presentation and for this uh, wonderful discussion. Uh, it was it's so interesting, and I'm glad you're doing this work. That you know you do, because I I agree that uh, always looking at the same subpopulation of a population is yeah. probably not very helpful. So I'm glad you're you know you're doing the path for us to leave a trail for, you know, um, <laughs> making better research. So yeah, thank you. And thank you for sharing. And feel thank free you for having me. Thank you. Yeah, feel free to always come back if you have maybe some research that you wanted to share with us. And um, yeah, it's been an honor and pleasure. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, come back anytime. <laughs> yeah, I very much enjoyed it. And I will try to come back. Wonderful. And yeah, thank you everyone for coming and participating and for the great questions. And um, yeah, um, we have a climate room later at 9 p.m. EST with Dr. England about ocean currents changing. And uh, tomorrow we have um, another um, few interesting rooms this week. Uh, we'll have Dr. Bennett uh, from the University of Oxford talking about new treatment targeting a chronic pain. Um, and Dr. Congreve about 3D printing with light and converting nanoparticles. And then on Friday, we'll have Dr. Santos uh, talking about light activated antibacterial molecular machines that kind of attack. Um, resistant germs um, so it will be interesting and yeah thank you again artin uh it was a pleasure and talk to you soon hopefully yes okay bye everyone i'll close the room and three two one bye <laughs>